we gather as your people today, gracious God, drawn by your grace and held in your sustaining love. As we worship, we have much for which to give thanks to you. Thank you for all who have gone before us, providing this place for our worship and work together, casting a vision for our ministry far beyond these walls, and leaving a legacy of courage and strength that continues to inspire us. Thank you for bringing us together in our time. Make us faithful stewards of our history. Make us harbingers of hope for all who will come after us. Make us constant in our faith in a world of change and challenge. Thank you for those who lead us in our life together and equip us for our ministry in your name. For those who minister to us and make visible your care for us in our time of crisis and need. For those who have responsibility to lead us in our time of transition today. For those who see the promise in our children and nurture them in the way of Jesus. For those who help us grow in faith and make all of us uncomfortable in our complacency in a needy world. For those who give faithful stewardship of the resources we have given to your work and extend the ministry of this congregation. We give thanks for all whose work enhances our worship and strengthens our fellowship and enables us to service the four beyond these walls. We pray today for those who are gathered in this meeting place. Bring to all of us a clear word of grace and truth. Bring to those whose hearts are heavy with hurt the assurance of your care and promise of your healing and strengthening presence. Bring to those who search for life directions a guide and a light to shine on their way. Bring to those who feel alone, even with others all around them, a confidence in your promise to be with us always and the reality of a community that cares. May our worship today have the ring of reality in it as we open our minds to your truth, as we raise our voices in praise, as we encourage one another with words of kindness and acts of love, and as we pray together, even as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Let us stand for the reading of the gospel. From John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 29. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had gone were locked because of the fear of Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord and said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my fingers in the mark of his nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the gospel of grace. In any congregation today, anywhere in the world, where people gather for worship, there are many people painfully aware that they live in in-between times. Someone has experienced grief in the loss of a loved one, and comfort has not yet come. Someone has been overtaken by illness, and recovery is long and slow and uncertain. A job has been lost and no work is on the horizon. A house has been flooded and memories swept away. A relationship has been broken and the new one seems impossible to imagine even as the old one seems impossible to mend. A commitment has been made, but one sits wondering if he or she will be able to fulfill it. A difficult time has passed, and you don't know what to expect in the coming one. A move has been made to some place that does not yet 
seem like home. Meantime, in between times, life seems to be an unending series of such times. We are forever moving from something that we know to, to something we cannot yet clearly see. We may, we may greet such times with a great deal of confidence and eager expectation, or we may see it with a foreboding sense of dread. Questions come in all of life's mean times. What can bring meaning to these days in between? How can I cope when the weather forecast for my life has changed from sunny to mostly cloudy with 100% chance of rain? What can we expect from God in life's meantime? And so people find their way to a place of worship, some coming confidently and expectantly and others grudgingly as a last resort. But they dare to pray for a miracle of mercy, for a gift of grace, for the church to become a bearer of healing and hope for them. To me, the most significant stanza in those prolific uh, works of Fanny Crosby, who wrote so many hymns, is this stanza. It's the third stanza, which means that we would sing it here, but many Baptists would not sing the third stanza. <laughs> but these are the words. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, Chords that are broken will vibrate once more. As a congregation, we find ourselves in a significant meantime in the life of our church. But God have, uh, God's people have, have stood in such places many times before. The common factor that brings together the two extended passages we've read this morning, the passage from Jeremiah and the passage from John, is that both of them deal with the life of the people of God in a time of basic transition and disruption and uncertainty. Jeremiah addresses the people uh, in, of Israel in the time of their exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. How could they sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? How could they worship without the temple? How could they remain faithful in a time of the silence of God? The text from John describes the appearance of the, of the disciples in what we might choose to see as the first interim in the life of the church. In the aftermath of the cross, in the fear of all that surrounded them. They were tempted to live as if the resurrection had not really happened. And the future of this fledgling movement 
seemed in doubt. Our experience is not nearly so crucial as theirs. Of course, we know the end of the story. We know how it turned out, and we're a part of a long, a long stream of Christian history where over and over again, things have looked bad only to have a new experience of God's grace. John Calvin said that the story of the church is the story of many resurrections. God, in our own personal lives, has come to us and we can bear witness of the reality that God has come and given to us a fresh wind of the Spirit, a fresh breath blowing in from tomorrow. As I read the passage about Jesus coming to his disciples, disturbed and disappointed and disillusioned by all that had happened to them, I came to realize that it contains many parallels to the experience of God's people wherever they are and in between times of their life together. Did you notice they were fearful? They were filled with anxiety. What is going to happen to us? What will the future be? Oh, we, do, we don't ask that question with the same kind of angst that they had, but, but we all know the unsettling effect of times like these we are passing through. Is there fear? Is there anxiety? However we are feeling in these days, all of us welcome the thought of God's presence and long for the sense of the risen Christ saying to us, peace be unto you. And the same was true for the people of ancient Israel in the time of the prophet Jeremiah as they endured exile in Babylon. How they yearned for the assurance of peace, the peace of God's presence, the peace of God's plan, the peace that could come uh, in knowing that God cared for them. Through Jeremiah, God spoke words of reassurance. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. And then when you call me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. God knew where they were. God knew what they needed most. And God has not forgotten our zip code either. In the disciples in that locked room, there was a fear that could only be dissolved by a realization that God was with them and God was for them. And this is the assurance of scripture that we do not stand at the end of things, we stand at the edge of things where God will be with us into the unknown. There was fear, but there was also doubt. Thomas expressed both by his absence and by his words. Thomas struggled to understand what all of this was about, and he did not understand how this could be. Jesus' promise had been so clear 
and his word so fresh. And surely he would not leave us like this. But when he said what he was really feeling, he said, I cannot believe there's a future for us now. I cannot believe unless I see more evidence. There's doubt. In times of any interim or times when people reassess their own relationship to the church and to the faith. There are the times when people wonder whether faith's foundation is secure and they find themselves in need of reassurance and reaffirmation that this is all worth it. There are many, many more who are of the tribe of Thomas who say, I need more, I need more. But in that first interim, there was not only fear and doubt, there was also community. There was a community that was brought together not only by the fear that they had, but also by the memories of, of all those experiences they had shared together and the things that had caused them to follow this Galilean in the first place. There was community as they thought about all that they had shared. They, they came together for they had come to depend on each other and they needed one another in their disappointment and fear as they faced the unknown future before them. One of the more interesting and important sentences in the whole account that we've read is in that description of the disciples' second gathering in the room. Did you see it? It's a little, little sentence. And Thomas was with them. Thomas seems not to have been able to endure the presence of others in his time of darkness and despair. And yet the disciples gathered a second time for some reason. Thomas had rejoined them. Thomas was there. And I think that's a tribute to Thomas. And I think that's a tribute to the community of disciples as well. Sometimes when people have problems with the faith, the last thing they want to do, the last place they want to be is in the fellowship of the church. And sometimes, sadly, it was with good reason. I wish we knew more about the events that must have transpired between those those days between the first and the second meeting. But for whatever unknown reason, whatever happened during that time, whatever circumstance was responsible, Thomas joined them in the second meeting. Can you imagine what must have gone on in the conversation between Thomas and the disciples in those days in between? And this is hidden in the Bible. But I can imagine they're telling Thomas excitedly, we've seen the Lord. And he's a bit skeptical about that. And they said, well, yeah, well, why don't you come to church next Sunday and, 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 and we'll, we'll experience it together. And Thomas perhaps said, oh, I don't think so. You know, for one thing, Peter is there. And Peter always speaks before he thinks. And he won't let anybody else say much. And, and, 
And he tends to speak for all of us in a rather uncomfortable way. And then there's James and John. They're always pushing forward, wanting to get the best place at the table with Jesus. And they monopolize his coming and they saying, and, and they won't let anybody else bend his ear. And then there's the others, you know. You know all those others, they never say anything. We don't know where they are on things. <laughs> no, I believe I'll opt out. But Thomas was there. And whether it was because of someone's urgent witness, someone's loving touch, someone's insistent invitation, or perhaps because the inner promptings of his own heart would not let him stay away, Thomas was there. Interims are time when no one needs to be left alone, left behind, or left out. Interims are time when it's easy for people to slip away, sometimes dramatically and sometimes simply with little notice until long after they've gone. It is a time when the fellowship of believers need to be aware of the hurts and the promise in every heart. This is a time when all of us can become aware that we need one another and Thomas was with them. Look around. Where's Thomas? The experience of the disciples ushered in a new commitment. In that locked room, the disciples had an experience that transformed them from being fearful, intimidated, following followers of Jesus into fearless and confident witnesses of the resurrection. Throughout the biblical story, always the moment of high spiritual experience is followed by the command to go and to serve and to do the work of the gospel. The post-resurrection experience of the disciples was no exception. And so after calming their troubled spirits, spirits uh, by the reassuring presence, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He had said this before. He said it many times. He had made it clear that their mission and ours was to be his mission. He made it clear that even in that troubled, dangerous time, they were to give themselves with new dedication to the task God had called them to perform. And in a similar way, I'm convinced God speaks to us today. What are we to do in this meantime? We do the work of Jesus Christ. We do the next thing that is before us in Jesus' name. We make his love visible to the skeptical eyes of others. And we speak his word clearly and truthfully. We hear the testimony of what he's done for us. We are God's people on God's mission of grace 
and truth. And if we are going to be good Christians, we have to ask ourselves, what are we good at? Jesus made it clear as he talked about our being a fellowship of forgiven forgivers. The people of God are to be good at forgiveness. Many discussions of the verse where Jesus said uh, the, 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 the sins you will uh, forgive will be forgiven and those not will be retained. And it has prompted many, many studies, undoubtedly many graduate dissertations. What did he mean by this? I'm convinced that he was not talking about forgiveness as being reserved only for the chosen few, but I think it is more productive to ask who has the responsibility to forgive and what are the consequences if we do or do not? And the answer is that all of us are to be bearers of God's kind of forgiveness. And as we carry out this responsibility, we are becoming most like the Christ we serve. How do we do that? And Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. And so today we pray, breathe on us, breath of God, Fill us with life anew that we may love all whom you love and do what you would do. They reclaimed their faith. They reaffirmed their mission. And they went forward to become the presence of Christ in God's world. To bear the amazing good work of what God had done and was doing in them and that experience of the disciples in their time must surely become our own. And so it is a mean time, a mean time of working and waiting. And though we don't like to wait, obviously, it is in the waiting that we recover again the presence of God and we reaffirm God's word to us and we discover what we can be and what we can do in God's will. And we expect even as we gather within these walls, there will come to us a power that will take us from this place to make a difference in the world. We wait in expectation. We wait for the coming of Christ's spirit in us. A number of years ago, when I was living in the Washington, D.C. area, my wife and I had occasion to take a couple of friends to a concert of the National Symphony Orchestra in the Kennedy Center. These were special friends, Jan and Carl Seal. Carl was a symphony conductor at Pan American College in the Rio Grande Valley. And Jan, just in the last few years, has been the poet laureate of Texas. But it was a special time and we'd gotten to the concert hall early and we were sitting there and the stage was empty and we were talking a bit 
And then the, the members of the orchestra began to come in and uh, began to take their place and talk to each other. And before long, uh, the noise level increased. And, and before long, uh, there was this crescendo of chaotic sounds that I could not make much uh, sense out of. And I turned to Carl and I said, what are they doing down there? If, if, if I were somebody who had just come to the first concert, how would, how would I explain what was going on? And he kind of got interested in that question. And in a few minutes he said, you see that person? There's a lot of people there who are simply studying the score and getting their music in order and making sure they understand what is going to happen. And he said, and do you hear that higher piercing kind of sound? He said, that's the oboe. And they are tuning their instruments to the oboe. I don't know why that's an orchestral tradition. Maybe, maybe it's hard to tune the oboe to anything else. I, I, I'm not sure. The musicians will have to inform me about that one. But as, as that was happening, then we began to hear one instrument playing the same phrase over and over and over again, just a few measures. And Carl said, you hear that? That's probably that person's only place in the, in the concert tonight where, where he or she will be heard. That's their moment. And they want to be sure they're getting it right. And on and on it went until finally Finally, everybody was in their place and the noise began to subside and the lights began to dim and that kind of holy hush descended on the, on the hall and Carl leaned over and whispered to me, now they're just waiting, waiting for the conductor to come and the real music to begin. What can we do in this waiting? What can we do in this meantime that is ours? We can tune our instruments. We can study the score. We can practice the part that's uniquely ours to play. We can come together and wait Wait with expectation for God to come. We can come together to make the music again. Chords that are broken will vibrate once more. Amen.